today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, new restrictions are coming in. Uh, Stay-at-home order going into effect, uh, which looks like we're back to curbside pickup. Again, we'll get all of this information, the correct information, coming up at the bottom of the hour. Uh, But back to curbside pickup, and of course, uh, not good news for the restaurant industry. Uh, Let's bring in James Rylett, Vice President of Central Canada with Restaurants Canada. Uh, The industry calling on financial support from the Ontario government with having to close down after reopening uh and this was uh this was done uh this weekend prior to this uh, announcement about the stay-at-home order but the ontario restaurant industry is demanding the provincial government pick up the 100 million dollar tab following the abrupt closure of indoor and outdoor dining last week uh the restaurants canada along with the hotel or rather uh, hotel and motel association uh, decided uh, the decision to pull the emergency break to slow the spread has significantly hurt that industry and in an open late in an open letter the organization uh, is asking for costs of up to $100 million uh, to give to these restaurants across uh, the uh, province because of wasted inventory, staffing uh, costs, patio setup. Uh, and then, you know, here we are again back uh, into a, uh, a shutdown situation. James Rylett is with us now. James, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So obviously, James, this was all penned prior to uh, the announcement that uh, the stay-at-home order was there. Let's go back to this scenario. Restaurants were closed, uh, got an opportunity to open, and we all know that they got to order stock, and then all of a sudden, an abrupt close. Um, is it better just to keep all of this closed, or is it you know, better to try to find the balance somewhere? Um, <laughs> it's hard to say. Some Some people argue that we should have just stayed closed. Some uh, argue that, uh, you know, every little bit helps. So, you know, at the very least, uh, we w- would have hoped that we could get some more uh, um, uh, uh, heads up <laughs> that it was coming. Uh, I think basically all we were trying to do here was uh, tell the province and everyone that there's a cost to, to doing this, uh, going back and forth all the time. And um, if these, if the numbers were going up and they, and they could see that, uh, they could have given us a little more heads up. So obviously what happens when things close down, uh, you're not buying product. When you decide you're going to open, you've got to buy lots of food, and then you close down again, you're stuck with the food. Is that That's the situation, correct? Yeah, more or less. You also have like draft beer. Once you've tapped the keg, it, it can't be returned or um, it'll go bad. Um, things uh, You have staffing that you've brought in that then you can't use. Um, and plus, when you close down a restaurant, you can't just turn a key and just and everything goes back. Yeah. You, you do have to do some close down stuff. So has your position changed now? And again, we haven't, haven't got the news conference yet, but obviously we're expecting to get a stay at home order. Does that change your position in any way? Well, in the letter, we, we pointed out that one of our biggest problems is that not everyone's being treated equally. We're, it's, we're not all in the same boat. Um, restaurants have always been the first to close uh and every time they close us, the numbers don't, it doesn't affect the numbers at all. We don't believe we're, we're the problem. So it was very hard to take, uh, when we were being forced to be closed and then see the pictures of people swarming to, to, uh, malls and retail and, uh, they were all, all, all able to be open, but we were closed. Yeah, it's 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 kind of discouraging when you see shopping malls, parking lots, and as the premier said, people coming out, they're not even carrying shopping bags; they're just going in there for a walk. 
Um, obviously, social gatherings or the ga- any sort of gathering of people uh, is a concern, and, and you can see where restaurants fall uh, under this. Uh, with this, and, and I guess we don't know because of the news conference, but with the stay-at-home type order, is that just limiting you to curbside pickup now? Um, usually when, when there's a stay-at-home order, the last stay-at-home order, you were still allowed to go inside the restaurant to pick up, and uh, you didn't have to pick it up at curbside. You could walk in and get your food, uh, same as a, like a quick-service restaurant. Mm-hmm. You could go to the counter. Um, but, you know, we're not opposed to the stay-at-home order. If we're going to be closed anyway, and everyone get, is, if closing everyone will get this to go away sooner, um, then we're supportive of that. So any, uh, are you expecting, uh, coming up with this news conference later, any more funding for the restaurant industry? Um, I don't think they'll, I can't, I don't expect that they'll address that now. I'm sure they have uh, quite a few other things. Uh, an increase in funding would have to go to cabinet. And my understanding is the last couple of cabinet meetings have been pretty full with discussions on what to do with the orders. So, um, you know, we're willing to have the conversation and uh, when they have time and when they're able to sit down with us, uh, we will do that and try and uh, try and find a way to get some more money in the pockets of the restaurants. Uh, a report showing that you guys have have uh, have uh, acknowledged, and this is from Eat and Drink, that numbers show that stores and restaurants aren't the drivers of COVID spread uh, in Ontario. We're obviously told that gatherings, anytime people get together, uh, there's the chance of spread. So how, how, what do you base this on? Um, we're seeing the numbers that uh, public health is putting out. We're also seeing it in other provinces, a lot of other provinces, uh, they do as much as they can to not close down restaurants because they know if they don't give people an outlet, uh, a, a safe and controlled outlet, uh, they'll just gather on their own and, and no one will be responsible for that. So um, that's what we've seen in the past uh, and that's what we've seen with the public health numbers and uh, um, nothing that we've seen counteracts that. Uh, could you see patios remaining open? Um, or is that, you know, when you get a stay-at-home order, that, that's obviously conflicting with that? Yeah, the, I don't, we don't expect the patios to be open. But, you know, coming out of the stay-at-home order, if uh, when they start to open things up, uh, we would hope the patios would at least be open because, um, as the public health uh, officials said just two weeks ago now, um, they they saw that as a low-risk uh, um Enterprise, and they thought it was it would be good for people's mental health that gives them the ability to eat on a patio with their family. Um, what about other uh, asks for the government, like extending the property tax, uh, energy cost rebates, and I know I know, I know another big uh, stickler here was the markup that uh, the LCBO and the beer stores put on alcohol. You're a lot of people don't realize that when restaurants buy alcohol, they're paying the exact same price that everybody else is at the LCBO. Yeah, we actually pay a little bit higher price. Uh, we pay one percent uh, more, um, and main reason is because of that six percent markup. So, we uh, it, we think that'd be an easy thing to, for them to do. Our request was to for the Ontario to join all other provinces in giving us a discounted price, but uh, saving that at the very least they could uh, get rid of the markup tax. 
All right, James Rylett's been with us, Vice President, Central Canada with Restaurants Canada. Obviously, the industry in uh, in a shambles because of uh, stopping and starting and stopping and starting and then eventually stopping again uh, and calling on more financial support. James, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. No problem. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Why are we having ethical debates if there's vaccine in freezers? Feel free to weigh in on that. Uh, again, uh, all kinds of people uh, uh, hammering the province for um, having vaccines sitting in freezers. Oddly enough, we had this discussion a week or so ago with Ian Lee, the guest we're about to have on now, a business prof at Carleton University, and explain supply chain, but still, uh, it, it seems that's the discussion we're having. Uh, even liberal leader Del Duca tweeting, uh, just the other day, check the freezer, Doug. Uh, and again, as the commentary says, would we be having discussions about who should go first and changing the priority of who does go first? Would we be having those, uh, conversations if Dougie was hoarding and sitting on vaccines in a freezer? If we had an ample supply, would we be having those discussions? Would we be debating, as NASI held a news conference today, about delaying the second dose for four months, which other countries are delaying doses, but certainly not by that size of a time limit? Would we be having those discussions if there were vaccines sitting in freezers? No. So why are we? All right. Uh... <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. But uh, there is a lot of politics at play here, and there is uh, a federal election on the horizon, that's for sure. All right, let's talk about, uh, let's bring in Ian Lee and talk about this. And also, the Oakville Ford plant is to shut down due to a semiconductor shortage. We've heard of this in various industry uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. My, yes, I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. My, my uh, pleasure to speak. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the vaccination, but again, you so eloquently gave us a, a lesson in supply chain management. Right, we use right. the analogy as well as going going grocery shopping on a Saturday, Saturday night and Sunday. The fridge is full. By the time you get to the end of the week, uh, it's empty again. And I guess my question to you, Ian, is would we be having the discussions about who gets to go first? Would we be having the discussions about delaying the second dose for four months if we had an adequate supply? No, no, uh, of course not. Um, and it just shows, and I, I, I'll, this comes up, I'm not a professor of supply chain management, but I teach the strategy capstone course, but it encompasses all the different parts of the value chain. And one of the things I've noticed in the last two, three, four, five years with my students when they analyze companies is the increasing importance of the supply chain management function within a company. Uh, because every company is uh, sources. I mean, there's no, no company or country that is truly autonomous unto itself. I mean, North Korea, probably, because they don't trade with anybody. Nobody wants to trade with them. They're autarkic, to use the academic term, meaning they don't trade with anybody. They're completely independent, and they're unbelievably poor, by the way. Uh, but most companies um, have an elaborate set of partnerships with their supply chain. Because no company, and, and I've actually had emails from people have heard me talk with you and say, well, why can't they you know, do everything inside the company? Well, there's just too many different competencies. There's too many different technologies. I mean, the car itself is a perfect example. There are multiple technologies in an automobile. 
I mean, there's, there's the electronics, there's the engine technologies, there's the powertrain technologies, there's the tire technologies, there's the seats and the door and the, and the, um, the uh, automated, the, uh, uh, the airbags that, uh, you know, explode safety, when you yeah. have an accident. There, in, in when cars first were invented, I, I found a study that estimated electronics were 3% of the value of a car in 1900. And it's estimated by 2030, it's going to be 50%. Right now, I would say it's probably 25 to 30%. That's everything from the onboard entertainment systems to the GPS systems to electronic sensors that sense you're driving too fast or too close or you're going off the road. And we know all those sensors because the car is constantly talking to us now. That's mm. electronics. And no company has the expertise to become an expert at producing every one of those technologies. So the, the company called GM or Ford outsources, properly so, to companies that have developed expertise and core competencies in just that narrow niche product. And so in this instance, there's a supply chain interruption, could be because of COVID, don't know, from the IT company that is supplying Ford, but these are critical components, whether it's components that modulate and, and add the engine itself or change the gears in an automatic transmission. I mean, there's just, there's an incredible mm. amount of technology in an automobile today. The last time I saw the metric, and this was, oh, a good four or five years ago, there was apparently the equivalent of seven very powerful computers in the average automobile. People don't realize how much computing power. It dwarfs by many magnitudes the amount of computer power that was on the Apollo 11 that went to the moon. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. The There's more technology power. in your phone now. <laughs> your phone itself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the, people just don't realize how much sophistication is underneath the hood in all that incredible electronics technologies, you know, that lock the door, something as trivial as it locks the door automatically when yeah. you close the door. Well, there's electronics guiding that. And so we are utterly dependent. Now, of course, it makes the car safer. They're more reliable. They break down less often. They can diagnose themselves. They can keep us out of trouble. And they, they're more fuel efficient and all that good stuff. But we're more and more dependent on the multiple technologies, and I want to emphasize that, it's multiple technologies in the car. It's not one computer system. There's multiple computer systems in your automobile as you drive down the road. So we've certainly heard of the semiconductor shortage as as this yes. um, as the pandemic progressed. We we did even hear how it's affecting automobile production, but it's affecting a production in a lot of different industries. Yes. Talk about how this has now come to, for example, the Oak, uh, Oakville uh, Ford plant to shut down due to uh, the semiconductor shortage. Why did the pandemic produce this shortage, or is it like every other industry, like lumber, what have you? It's just they're shutting down for a period of time during a pandemic and they're falling behind I think there's uh, I think there's two and from my reading of uh, the industry uh, public uh, you know they release press releases what I've, it's been reported in the Wall Street Journal some of the IT technology uh, publications um, there were two two separate problems they did have uh, problems in the factory with any of these mass factories where you've got lots of people working close together uh, is that they had COVID infections. And so they had people, you know, not coming into work because they were sick. And the other thing is, like, I think it's like the, similar to lumber, even though lumber's nowhere near as high-tech as semiconductors, um, they underestimated demand. They didn't realize that we would 
we, the people, <laughs> all of us, millions and millions of us, would change our behavior when we got locked up, basically, told to stay home in our house. And we started to, guess what? <laughs> Stream stuff. We started to watch movies. Well, without even going off on a separate dis- dissertation on TVs, TVs are incredibly powerful today with computers on board mm-hmm. and the streaming technologies. And so people started to upgrade not just their TVs, they started to upgrade their computer systems. And so the demand went through the roof. So they underestimated demand during the, uh, during the COVID and then they had supply problems at the production side because of uh, people uh, getting sick. So, and it, this is a vital technology. You know, most people don't, you know, they probably even hear the word semiconductor and their eyes may glaze over. Uh, I don't, even though it's the proper term, I prefer to use the word computer chips because for mm-hmm. some reason I think the average person understands a computer yes. chip but not a semiconductor. So the semiconductor is basically the brains of your computer. And I would even say it's the brains of your car today. And so it's not something that, oh, well, we'll add it on later on. It's as, it's as fundamental to an automobile as tires or an engine. Mm. You just can't drive a car today off the assembly line without those, those semiconductors being embedded in the car. And so if you don't have semiconductors to put in the car, you bring your production line to a stop just as much as if you ran out of engines temporarily. So where do these plan. semi where do these compu- uh, computer chips or semiconductors originate? Where do they come from? Um, the two world leaders uh, are the United States and uh, and Taiwan, and uh, they're both um, you know Intel of course is a famous producer of semiconductors in California, AMD, uh, which is um, uh, automated micro devices. I think is the acronym doesn't matter. It's a huge huge company in Silicon Valley, but started by a Taiwanese American woman with a Ph.D. in electrical engineering. Hmm. Fascinating company. And they're not, by any means, the only two companies that produce semiconductors. But the, the Chinese are so far behind in this, they're not coming from China. If anybody is sort of thinking in the back of their minds this is something to do with China, the Chinese are way, way behind in uh, summer ca- semiconductors. That's why they've been trying to hack in and steal uh, IP from the leading semiconductor companies. But the dominant countries, uh, the companies that are dominant in semiconductors are in two countries. One is the west coast of the United States, and the other is Taiwan. And uh, not to put down the, the South Koreans who are coming on very strong, but it's, there's other countries are, are they're producing them, but they're not, they're not at the cutting edge. They're not at the bleeding edge. Uh, it's, it's the Americans and the, uh, and the Taiwanese especially so. And, and as I said, they're in everything, Scott. They're in everything. They're in your cell phone. You know, I just bought a scanner to scan photographs. It's just loaded with computing power with semiconductors. You know, everything you buy today, I mean, fridges, fridges, imagine, fridge and stove, (laughs) semiconductors. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, what industries does this affect? But it's easier to ask what industries this doesn't affect, because many have said, you know what, the, the, the car industry isn't the big industries anymore. There's other industries that are sucking these chips. You're absolutely right. It's in just about anything, anything that's got electricity flowing into it. I think it, uh, some engineers might uh, curl their hair by me saying this, but I think it's not a, uh, an unfair statement that if you have electricity flowing into it, you've got a plug to your machine, there's probably yeah. a semiconductor set of chips in that, that, that product. could be a hairdryer, something as trivial as a hairdryer. 
you know, it could be electric scissors, I don't know, <laughs> your TV monitor. I mean, it's just, I had the, one of my, my LCD monitors failed about two years ago, and they came out to the house, and I watched him take it apart, and he took the back of a 42-inch LCD. It's just nothing but computer chips. Yeah, it's just yeah. nothing, nothing but computer chips. I had a washer fail a couple of years ago, and he said, well, we just got to replace the whole board, the whole semiconductor yeah. board, and it was an yes. electronic failure. It wasn't a mechanical failure of the, the thing going around and, you know, <laughs> washing the clothes. And, and so it's just about anything that has a plug uh, is, is likely, probably, got some chips in, uh, in, in that uh, product. So we are absolutely dependent. This is why hacking is becoming so prevalent, because you can hack. I just got off like five minutes ago off a presentation by a cybersecurity company here in Ottawa, and they were talking about all the ways that companies are being hacked, and they were saying how recently uh, a Boeing was hacked up in the sky through a data link. And uh, I was fascinated by that, and uh, so, because there's massive amounts of computing power in an airplane, by the way. And, and so this is the downside. It, it brings great benefits. Great benefits, you know, it makes everything go faster, cheaper, longer, you know, breaks down less often, but then we become more, if we replace one set of risks, we'll call it mechanical failure of the old-fashioned technology, now we're replacing with a different set of risks, one of which is that we can, somebody can break into your fridge <laughs> if you're hooked, if your fridge is hooked up to the grid. Get you get too much milk ordered to your house when you that's don't really right. need it. <laughs> if you if you connect your fridge to the grid, that's right, or your sure. di- your dishwasher or your stove. Imagine, <laughs> or your lights. I've got my lighting system hooked up. <laughs> it, yeah, all of a sudden, the, you know, there's a glitch in the fridge. The next thing you know, you got a delivery coming in that exactly. you didn't order. You know, you said something interesting. I asked you about where these chips come from, and you said leading manufacturers, Taiwan and the United States. Many may have thought it would have been China, but no. China doesn't necessarily develop or or invent this stuff. They're more into the assembly side of it. It's just That's cheap labor. Correct. Is that accurate? Yes. And there's been quite a few articles lately in Foreign Affairs magazine, Foreign Policy magazine, some of the leading, some of the intelligence magazines uh, in, in Washington. And they said there's a huge war on um, between, uh, not military war, I'm talking, uh, call it a competitive war between uh, China and Russia, which we all knew about already. But one of the areas where there's just a battle royale going on is in uh, semiconductors and chips. And another is artificial intelligence. And they're converging. Um, artificial intelligence is being used increasingly with these technologies, with the, with the semiconductors. And China, everything I've read, and I'm not an engineer, I'm not an electrical engineer, I'm not in an IT company, but I've been fascinated by this, and I've been reading as much as I possibly can. And uh, China is behind. There is no question that China is significantly technologically behind Taiwan and the United States in terms of semiconductor technology. The Americans and the Taiwanese are at the, at the very leading edge, producing the next generation that are even faster and faster, and they're, of course, moving into quantum computing for semiconductor chips. It seems odd, though, because, you know, the big debate about 5G and Huawei, and everybody just thinks that, that China's cutting edge in all of this. But, you know, if you look at it, I mean, the Chinese have been brilliant since uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping in 1991 or 1992, uh, said, we're going to go down a different road from Mao Zedong. We're going to open China up to the West. He said, we made a big mistake back in 1948. I actually was given a copy by one of my students at the time, teaching in China, uh, of his speech that he gave, obviously, in Mandarin, and I had a translated copy in English. And he said, you know, Mao was a great leader, blah, 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 blah. But he said he made one big mistake. He closed down our access to the West, so we didn't have any learning, transfer of technology, and so forth. And he said, I'm going to fix that. And he did. 
and he opened up and turned China into a quasi-market economy that's still communist at the top, but capitalist market-driven much more at the, at the, down at the firm level. And so they have been going uh, uh, like crazy ever since. But they came from a very far... In 1991, China was truly at the bottom of the third world. It was a low-income country that actually experienced starvation yeah. from time to mm-hmm. time. And then in a space of 25 years, they went from what the World Bank calls a low-income country, less than $1,000 a year of income. They went to a middle-income country. So they've moved up very dramatically, but they are not at the edge, at the, at the, call it the IT edge or the intellectual property and intellectual innovation and development of a, of a Canada or a Germany or a, a U.S., of course, or a Taiwan or a South Korea. And they're playing catch up. They're How long good. before they are at the same level as everybody else? I've, I'm one of those skeptics who argue that the China is not going to surpass the United States. Um, because they, ha- they, they lack all of the key things. I mean, the United States has uh, world-class universities. The Economist estimates 90 of the 100 best universities on the planet Earth are in the U.S. There's a culture of innovation, a culture of challenge. You know, if you're going to start doing some brand-new technology that's going to uh, invalidate existing industries and businesses, you, you know, in the States, if you've got a bright idea, you don't have to go to the President of the United States and say, please, pretty please, will you let me do this? In the Chinese system, because it's a command and control system at the top, anything major has to be approved at the top. And so I've long argued that their system is antithetical to a culture that fosters and pushes and promotes and funds and incentivizes this unbelievable innovation that you see in the states it's in it's in there it's in the american culture in the dna in the market economy whereas their system they've produced let's give them full credit the chinese they have lifted themselves up by their bootstraps from being an absolutely desperately poor country at the bottom of the world to a middle-income country in the space of 25 years but to go from a middle-income country to a high-income country Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize for showing that no country has done it until they overthrew their own authoritarian system and went to a decentralized political system called basically democracy and a decentralized market economy, which is what we call capitalism. And that's what South Korea did, by the way, in the 1970s and 1980s. They used to be an authoritarian military junta, and then they evolved and changed and transformed. And, and, and the evidence, uh, when you look at countries around the world, they can go from the bottom to the middle because you can do it through coercion. The way I like to put it very colorfully and metaphorically is, uh, let's say I'm a dictator in Russia or China. I can go up to some peasant and, with a gun and say, pick up that pickup axe and start hammering that rock or I shoot you. You can compel them to work in what way you want. You can't go to a PhD in physics, put a gun to his head and say, think brilliant, innovative thoughts right now or I shoot you. It just doesn't work. You so in other words, the, so in other words, the critical thinking that is needed to yeah. be an advanced country like the United States would eventually be the downfall of That's the culture of Communist Party of China. And by the way, there's people that completely disagree with me. And yet, when you yeah. look at critical areas at the very bleeding edge, artificial intelligence, um, um, uh, semiconductors, uh, quantum computing, is China there or ahead of the states? No, it's far behind. So that's my evidence for my argument 
that if you look at the absolute outer cutting edge technologies, not existing technologies where they have um, manufactured them much more efficiently often, where they can produce uh, uh, and make the, the recipes already been designed. That's what I call the, the brilliant idea. You, that's the recipe. So somebody has the brilliant idea, Bill Gates called, let's create an operating system for computers. He creates the recipe, the program. Could be the recipe for a plane. And then you have to mass produce it. The Chinese mm-hmm. are great, brilliant at mass yeah. producing the recipe. But the value added that's made the U.S. and Western countries so wealthy and so advanced and so successful is inventing the recipe. Yeah. I heard, I had a prop say, I had a. I had a prof say it this way to me in, in one sense about uh, Chinese students coming to Canada. Uh, in China, they teach memorization, how to, yeah. to, to do something that's already been invented, whereas yeah. in Canadian universities, they teach you critical thinking, how yeah. to think outside the box and come to that conclusion. That's exactly my view, and I'm not trying and to... And that will be the downfall of the Chinese Communist Party, because it will be that critical thinking that makes people realize this system is... is, That's exactly my point of view. Critical thinking is great, but at the same time, the thing about that critical thinking is that when you start to embed that in in a person's mind, they're willing to start challenging everything. They start to challenge the president of the university, the president of the country, the prime minister. They challenge the professor. They challenge the CEO. And that's great. It produces the country we have, but it is antithetical to the Chinese system and the Russian. I'm just using those two because they're very famous countries. And what I'm describing, a system is that I'm describing, is absolutely antithetical to the way those two countries are constructed. So, yes, they can do mass production. They can order some company. You go out and produce, you know, 10 million tanks or whatever. You've got the recipe. Just go print them. They make multiple copies on a production line. That's very easy to force and coerce and create and make happen. But you can't coerce somebody to think up something that doesn't yet exist. How do you even know if that brilliant young person, male or female, is even thinking brilliant uh, thoughts? Uh, You don't know because it doesn't exist yet. It's like saying, come up with uh, an airplane before the first airplane was ever invented. And, and that's what they're doing. So innovation, the Americans and the, and the Taiwanese, let's give them credit, and the Germans are very good, especially in pharmaceuticals, for example, in automobiles, in electronics. But the Chinese have been, uh, the government of China has been brilliant at mass production and copying existing yeah. technologies. But I don't see where they've made enormous breakthroughs at the cutting edge in things that don't yet exist. Another free lesson from Professor Ian Lee uh, with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Fascinating discussion as always, Ian. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.